Father, you are faithful in love and strong to save. We needed that word this morning to remind ourselves of who we are. Your children, your church, your people, called out ones in this world. Father, thank you for another good week. You've, you've blessed us. You've met our needs. You've fed us, clothed us, covered us with safety. As we begin a new week, we take our Bibles and we open them, and it's with anticipation that we receive a word. And we want to follow after Christ, Lord, with all of our hearts. We want your word to speak to us. And we want you to use your word to, to hone us, to, to challenge us, to grow us, to convict us. Father, this triumphal entry Sunday, would you teach us now what it means for Jesus to be our King and our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we begin our service today, our sermon time, I want you to say a word with me. It's a simple word. It's the word almost. Will you say that with me? Almost. I don't know if you've ever thought about that word. That can be a loaded word. That can be a really emotional word. How about um, imagining that you're a grandparent and you call your young ones, your grandchildren to your lap and, and you say, children, come, let me tell you a story about how I almost became the president of the United States. <laughs> or how about, children, let me tell you about when I played in the NFL from 1990 to 93, I was a place kicker. And our team went to the Super Bowl four times in a row. And we had a chance to win. And it was on me to kick. And children, I almost made it. <laughs> but Peppy, where's your rings? No, we lost the game. I, I almost made it. Almost. I, I almost got stopped in time. I almost broke up with him once. I almost passed the test. Almost. Almost. I want you to keep that word in mind as we turn to Matthew chapter 21. It's a familiar passage today as we begin the week that we know as Passion Week. We're in Matthew 21 as we continue to work our way through this wonderful gospel. Your notes are nearby. If you want to follow along, you might find that helpful. In Matthew 21, we have this account that we call the triumphal entry. Um, it, it is also known today as Palm Sunday. Now you need to be reminded that as we are on a um, a trajectory here now, our trajectory is on descent, and we're coming in for the landing at the cross. It's our final week. All these years we've been in Matthew, longer than our Lord's public earthly ministry of three years. <laughs> for almost three years, our Lord has been ministering, and for three and a half years, we've been studying that ministry. And we're down to the final week. Think of it. And here it is, the beginning of the week. Some say this occurred on Sunday. Others say it occurred on Monday. Bible students debate the chronology here, the timetable. But regardless, we are about five days away from Judas's betrayal kiss and our Lord heading to the cross. 
It's an interesting story, and let's read our text. And what I want us to do, I want us to try to think about what makes this event significant. I want to look at a little bit of symbolism that's in the event, and then I want to show us how embedded within the story is a deep sadness. Let's read our text, and then we'll go to our notes and try to benefit from this. Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We'll stop there. You'll notice in the notes that I put in the title an interruption, a parenthesis, where I wrote the not-so. It's the maybe not-so-triumphal entry when we understand it. You might find it helpful, too, if you want to read this week a little bit about uh, this final week of our Lord's ministry. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. It would be a good exercise for you. Um, But it'll be interesting to you to note that this story, the Palm Sunday story account, is in all four of the Gospels. All right, so we've been learning as we've studied Matthew that, that in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and, and, Luke, and Luke, that there is a parallelism and there's a retelling of the stories from the different vantage points. Often John is separate from the other three. In this account um, and the final week of ministry, John gives us significant detail. If you have your pen handy, you might write down Mark 11, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. If you have a reference Bible, it's probably already listed at the beginning of this passage. But those are the four accounts in the four, all four Gospels. And if you'll find the passage of the triumphal entry this week and just start there, you'll know that you're reading from the beginning of the week to the, to the cross. What I want you to do, if you will, I think you will benefit from it, is read all four of the Gospel accounts From the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday to the Good Friday or on through to the resurrection account. But you'll find it interesting the different details that the different writers include. And you'll really find and see the difference in John's account and some of the accounts that John records for us. Very interesting. And as well with this story we're going to benefit from the different writers' vantage points. If you're like me and you've been around church world all your life, you remember Palm Sunday. You were starting to get excited for Easter because you might get chocolate bunnies or something. Um, We'll not digress down that road. But um, in Sunday school, um, when I was a kid in our little Bible church, 
we had flannel graph and you know flannel graph and we put these pictures up on the board and it would be Palm Sunday and our Lord would be riding on a donkey coming into town, something like our screen this morning. And the teacher would cut little branches and we would wave our branches and we would sing Hosanna, Hosanna and praise to the king. But I have to tell you that I, I don't know that I really got this story. It's just kind of an odd story. He's coming into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of Passion Week. We know from reading the account that at least a percentage of the audience that was praising his name, throwing their coats in the street and waving branches and quoting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that at least a percentage of those were voicing their opposition to Jesus by Friday night. And when Barabbas was presented as an option with veins bulging in their necks, they screamed and cried out, release Barabbas, but crucify Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. It's just an odd thing, this this entry. And so I thought it would be good for us this morning to take a minute and just make sure that we recognize the significance of this account. Why does this account matter? What is it? And it is important because it's in our Bibles and it's also recorded in all four of the Gospels. What makes this account significant? Well, the first point that I want to make, we need to go over to John chapter 12 for that. You might want to mark Matthew because we're coming right back. But in John chapter 12, we recognize that um, a number of of things have been going on in the life of our Lord. And in fact, um, if you know know the, the template of John's gospel, you know that he wrote his account to prove that Jesus was the Christ. And he recorded only seven miracles of our Lord, and he recorded these seven miracles as a demonstration of proof of the deity of Christ. So if you're a skeptic about who Jesus was, you want to read John very carefully. John's a heady book. It's not easy to understand. But John is arguing from the vantage point of a personal, intimate friend of Christ and one of his closest disciples who had witnessed with his own eyes, the ministry and life of our Lord Jesus, and he picked out seven miracles to prove the deity of Christ. The seventh of those miracles has just taken place in chapter 11, right before the triumphal account in John's Gospel in chapter 12. Now when I say John chapter 11, does that ring a bell to you? You need to catch some of these key stories in the Gospels. John 11 would be a really key passage because the entire chapter, nearly the entire chapter, is given to that most fascinating story of our Lord raising Lazarus from the dead. You remember Mary and Martha, and they were upset that their brother was sick. Our Lord delayed, and then he comes, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's John 11. Okay, So if you let your eyes, for example, go over to John chapter 12, and you look down at verse 9... You see that that event becomes a pivotal event in the last few weeks of our Lord's earthly ministry. All right? So Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead, occurred very closely to this time of the triumphal entry. Just a matter of a short period of time. In John chapter 12, you can see the impact of it when it says... When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You know, it's like, come on, Mabel, we got to go see if we can see this guy. You know, it's like, this is a show. It's like, this guy was dead, man. He was dead for over three days. I want to go see what he looks like. I wonder if his skin's still wrinkled. 
You know, I wonder flies buzz around his eyes. It's like, this guy, it's amazing. And so the crowds come. So what happens is, look, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. That is be lar largely due to the buzz that was created and the hubbub that was created by raising Lazarus from the dead. The crowds had only increased in these final weeks. And now they're following Jesus around, not only to see him do more miracles, but they even want to see Lazarus. Maybe we'll get a glimpse of him. And because on account of him, verse 11, look what it says in chapter 12 of John. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away then and believing in Jesus. Lazarus' testimony impacted lives. And they believed that Jesus was the Christ. Well, you need to know that this just enrages the Jews, particularly the religious leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you let your eyes go back to chapter 11, like in my Bible, above verse 45, it says, the plot to kill Jesus. See the chapters broken up into sections? And in your Bible, it might give headings. Not all Bibles do that. Mine above verse 45 says, the plot to kill Jesus. Well, what is that? He raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowds have increased. People are following Jesus because of Lazarus. And, the, and this is nails on a chalkboard to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're like, we've got to kill this guy. We've got to put him out. Jesus. And while we're at it, let's just wipe out Lazarus. They have a conversation about that. And then notice what happens in verse 54 of John 11. Because of their assassination plot... Verse 54, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from that country, the country to Jerusalem, from out in the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were, verse 56, looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Okay? So you got the picture. Here's what's happening. The crowds are following him. The Pharisees and Sadducees and the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, have tried already to kill Jesus in the past, right? I mean, remember early on in his, in his public ministry, he was on the edge of a town. Uh, they, they were just screeching at him and they wanted to push him off a cliff that time. And what he did was just melt through the crowd. It was evidently miraculous. It was like their hands couldn't come up. They were, he just walked right through the crowd past him. Because why? Because it wasn't time. It wasn't time. Well, now Lazarus has been raised from the dead. The crowds are at an all-time peak and, and they want to assassinate him. And so our Lord has essentially gone into hiding to the degree that as the Jews gather from the countryside to Jerusalem, and this was a huge gathering because remember, triumphal entry going to Good Friday. This is Passover week. So everybody's coming to Jerusalem. Some Bible commentaries say that there were over 100,000 people, maybe a quarter of a million people gathered into a town that was only a couple of 10,000s before that. And that the people from all the countryside gathered, they also know from census numbers, from historical uh, chronicles, um, that a few years after this, and they think the population didn't change all that much in this region, that based on the population numbers that they know from historical accounts a few years after this, 
that there were upwards of two million animals sacrificed during Passover week. And they based that on the number of people that were there that was in the hundreds of thousands and how many different animals each family would slaughter. And so we're talking about, we're talking about crowds. We're talking about animals, bleeding bad, sheep, goats, calves, stink, flies. Everybody's gathered. It's exciting. It's Passover week. It's a very religious week. And they're looking for Jesus. Where's Jesus? Do you think he's even going to show up for Passover? He's gone into hiding. And then all of a sudden, here he comes into town and the crowd goes crazy. One of the things I want you to understand is that on Triumphal Entry, it's just not a day when palm leaves are given to kids to come down the aisle and sing praise to Jesus. What you have on Triumphal Entry on Palm Sunday is you have Jesus purposely presenting him to the himself to the Jews to take him to the cross. Jesus has been waiting for God's perfect timing and now it's time. It's Passover week. Friday night, Judas is going to kiss the betrayal kiss. He's going to the cross. He's going to be beaten. He's told his disciples over and over, but he's been delaying and he's been timing it. And now and then he went and he disappeared for a while because they were going to kill him. And he's on God, his father's time. He's not on the Pharisees assassin time. And this Sunday morning with these crowds, it will be such an irksome thing to the Pharisees. They will have to put him to death. And he's basically saying, here I am and I'm entering Jerusalem and it's time. In Galatians, it talks about that, that at just the right time, God sent his son. And it's God's timetable that Jesus heads into Jerusalem to head to the cross. So the first thing we see as to the significance of this event, letter A, is that Jesus purposely presents himself. It is time for him to go to the cross. The second thing I want you to see is back in Matthew chapter 21. And I want you to see that Jesus is also authenticating himself, prophetically speaking. He is prophetically, Jesus prophetically authenticates himself. Letter B, Jesus prophetically authenticates himself. What are we talking about here? We're in Matthew 21, and I want you to see um, the significance of this donkey and its colt. It's like, it's kind of weird, isn't it? So we're in verse 2 of 21, and Jesus gives this instruction to his disciples. And he says, now go over into the village, a couple blocks over. There's a guy there that's got some animals. He's got this, this mare or Jenny, or I don't know what you call a female donkey. I think a Jenny's a female mule, maybe. But this mare, I'm going to call her a mare. And she has a colt. And... Um, You'll find a donkey tied in the colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Some Bible students believe that these were friends of Jesus and that he knew they had animals. That's a possibility. It is interesting to note in the text that's the only place in Matthew where Jesus calls himself Lord. Curious, Lord. Okay? And, and when he tells these two disciples to go get the animals. He says, if they question it, and they do, I mean, you can imagine that, right? The gate rattles, guy's up on his porch, he looks out, and these two guys are walking onto his property, back into his fenced-in area, and untying his animals. You go out, hey, 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 what's up? These are my animals, what are you doing? The Lord needs them. Oh, 
That's all they had to say. The Lord needs them. So was it an act of His omniscience and His omnipotence? Uh, Did the Lord just turn their mind or was it someone that He already knew and they had called Him Lord? And so He knew what they would know Him by? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but it's kind of fun to think about. But it's exactly what happened. Our Lord in His omniscience and, and His wisdom of human nature knew that they would question taking their animals. The Lord has need of them. And immediately they said, yes, that's a good testimony for us, isn't it? If the Lord needs my stuff. Oh, the Lord? Sure. Anytime the Lord needs it. It's His. It's a good example. So they take the animal. And here's this mare and this colt. And they come and they go into town. And they they go by where Jesus is. And it says, um, look at verse 4 then. The Lord needs them. Verse 3. And He will send them at once. And they did. This took place, verse 4. Here it is. To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. But he's humble. And he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Interesting picture, isn't it? I mean, they're really excited to have a king. They certainly have the overthrow of Rome in mind. In their minds, it would look better if he was on a big white stallion with a big armed guard bringing him in. You need to understand that a second part of the significance of this passage is that it is right before their very eyes the very literal fulfillment of prophetic scripture. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, hundreds of years before, Zechariah spoke and he said, Your king will come, and he will come riding on the colt of this mare. And he will come riding right into your streets. And he fulfills it. Really, um, there are a number of prophetic fulfillments that take place on this occasion. One of the more interesting ones, yet kind of complicated, is a prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. If you have a study Bible, you might write this down and you can read a little bit about it. In Daniel chapter 9, there is a prophecy about when in Jerusalem your king will come to you. Your king will come riding into you. It has to do with a judgment that God put on Israel for disobeying His Sabbath laws, and they had ignored 70 of the Sabbath years. As a result, they were going to be in captivity 490 years, 70 times 7. They were going to have to pay back in captivity for disobeying God's Sabbath rules. And that's the story of where Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego get taken by Nebuchadnezzar and taken up into Babylon, present-day Iraq. If you study it out, and Bible students have done this carefully, and there's a couple different calendars that they look at, you'll note that the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, that 483 years are to go by of this captivity and then release before the king will ride into Jerusalem. And Bible scholars have given good credence to the fulfillment of that Daniel 9 prophecy to the very day, they say, on 9 Nisan. To the very day, 483 years prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. So what you have, you have in in the significance of this event, you have the Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled, literally, to the T, right there. It's not symbolic, it's literal fulfillment. Thirdly, I want you to see that Jesus also identifies himself. At this moment, on this day, on this morning, Jesus identifies himself as whom? As the Messiah. As the Messiah. 
We opened up with Psalm 118, and you don't have to turn there, but in Psalm 118, verses 28, uh, 25 and 26, um, it talks there about um, what they said. They quoted from there. Look at verse 8. So um, it's kind of interesting. Let's back up to verse 6 in Matthew 21. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now, I, I got stuck on this verse in the other services because it, it, if you're a wordsmith like our Stu Smith, our head usher, and you read this verse right here, here's, here's what you get in your brain immediately. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. And immediately in Stu's mind, Jesus is riding two animals at the same time. I guarantee it. I went and checked with him after the second service. Oh, absolutely, he said. That's what it says. That's what it says. No, they put their cloaks, that's the plural, and he sat on the cloaks on the one animal, the colt. All right, not both animals at the same time. But it is kind of a funny sentence to fulfill scripture. And then most of the crowd, verse 8, spread their cloaks on the road. That has to do with a tradition of royalty and kings coming. Special celebrities throw their coats and their outer garments down. And then they cut tree branches and spread them on the road, carpeting the road with these palm branches. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting. And here's where they're quoting Psalm 118. Hosanna to the king. Hosanna means save us now or save us, I pray. Save now, king. Hosanna to the... But look at the son of David. That's messianic terminology. That is a direct name that would have been understood by the Jews as the promised son of God. Blessed is he then who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the other parallel passages, they, they cry out, Blessed is the king. They called him a king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It says here in Matthew, they were identifying him as the Messiah. Now we know this is true um, because in Luke's account, you don't have to turn there right now, we'll see it in a minute. But in Luke's account, he records for us that as this is going on, and think of the cacophony. Think about this, this storm of sound. Okay, so Jesus has all of the, the Lazarus fans, you know, all of the fan club of Lazarus following him, looking for another miracle as he comes into Bethphage. And then it says in the parallel accounts that out of Jerusalem, where they had gathered from for the Passover, comes another crowd. So you've got the, the convergence of two crowds, literally, no doubt, thousands of people crammed into a relatively small area, and they're crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! You're the king! Save us! You're, and they're literally pronouncing him to be the Messiah. You're the son of David who's come to free us. You're who we've been looking for. You are the Messiah. And in Luke's account, the Pharisees are there, and they say to Jesus, tell them to be quiet. Shut them down. Why would they have said that? The reason they wanted Jesus to shut the crowd down is because they thought the crowd was being blasphemous. They knew that he was being identified as the Messiah and that he was receiving it. And to them, it was extreme blasphemy. And that's why they would say they nailed him to the cross because he was so blasphemous that he deserved to die. And you know what Jesus did? He didn't do anything. He let him go. And then he says to the Pharisees, he says... 
If they don't say it, the rocks are going to cry out and say it. In other words, it's true what they're saying, and they're making a public announcement for me. So the third significant moment of the day is as the crowd scream out who this is, they are literally publicly identifying Jesus. In other words, it's like he's saying to the Pharisees, here I am. I'm the Messiah. You can come and get me now so that I can go to the cross. It's time. I think that's pretty interesting. I also think it's interesting to observe that out of this, there is some symbolism in this passage. You've got to be a little bit careful here um, and not read too much into it. If the Bible doesn't say it, then we have to tread, tread easy. But I think embedded in the text, you see some things. For example, in Zechariah's prophecy in verse 5, look what it says. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you and he's coming how? He's coming humble. The first symbolic thing out of the passage that I observed is is this picture of his humility, letter A, his humility. Look what it says. He comes riding on this colt, a donkey. Now, in peacetime, kings would ride on donkeys, only in peacetime. If it was wartime, they would ride on a big, great white horse with their army. They would show all their power. But he comes as the Prince of Peace, symbolic of a king in peacetime, riding an unbroken colt, a picture of humility. I think it's a little bit of a symbolic picture that a colt that you would expect to be frolicly and uncooperative is peaceful. The Prince of Peace has calmed even the colt. I'm bringing peace to this community. I'm bringing peace to you and your troubled souls. Mark 11 and Luke 19, along with Matthew 21, say... He was never ridden before this day. You've got flapping garments. You've got waving branches. Any of you who've ever worked with animals and were trying to ride a brand new colt, if you did all that, it was just going out of their ever-loving mind, going berserk. But not with the Prince of Peace. He brings peace. Not only is this a demonstration of his humility being on this donkey, this simple farm animal, the king of the universe on a donkey, What a picture of his humility, he who humbled himself and is becoming obedient even unto death. It's also a picture, letter B, of his servanthood, of his servanthood. He comes in humble, mounted on a donkey, the foal of a beast of burden. What does a donkey do? A donkey serves his master. A donkey bears burdens. I think it was William Hendrickson in one of my commentaries that I read and count on Significantly for my study of Matthew, William Hendrickson in his New Testament commentary series kind of pointed this out and put that idea in my mind. Interesting that the one who will bear the burden of the sins of the world rides a beast of burden. He's just a servant. Just like this donkey is there to serve, to plow, to carry heavy loads. Our Lord comes into town to carry a heavy load. To bear our burdens. To put our burdens on Him. Transfer your burden over. A little bit of a word picture there, I think. But perhaps most importantly of all, I think it's significant that this is Passover week. And let her see, I want you to see the symbolic nature of his arrival, either on Sunday or Monday. Scholars debate which day it was. We see a picture of his substitutionary death. His substitutionary death at the beginning of Passover week. I've already referenced that the population had spiked there were up over, up over 100,000, maybe up to a quarter of a million people, up to a million, some say suggesting towards two million animals. That's just a crazy amount of animals that they were slaughtering. 
but in the thousands and thousands anyway. And here's all these animals. And what are they doing? They have their lamb, this spotless lamb, the lamb that has no blemish according to Old Testament law. And, and it's Passover week and they have come to sacrifice these animals. The blood is going to flow. The flies are going to buzz. The air is going to stink. Blood is going to flow. See, if you don't know your Bible very well and you're brand new to church, perhaps, let me tell you how you can divide up your Bible. You've heard of the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, just think of animals being sacrificed for sin. In the New Testament, think of Jesus once and for all being sacrificed for our sin. That's how it divides up. The Old Testament's a bloody book. Not only did they kill a lot of people, they killed a lot of animals. Why? Because it's a principle that is taught in Hebrews in the New Testament that is illustrated in the Old Testament over and over that sin brings death. And in fact, sin cannot be forgiven apart from the shedding of blood. And so in the Old Testament, you have detailed instruction from God on killing of animals in these feasts and calendar year events where they slaughter pigeons and goats and calves and doves and, and sheep and lambs. And the idea was that it was a picture that the family would understand. The father would get a lamb and they would talk about it and they would understand that they were obeying scripture and, and that this lamb represented a sin bearer or a goat even. And the sin, in a sense, would be transferred over to the animal. And then the animal would have to shed its blood and die the penalty for sin because the wages of sin is always death. It's a, it's an, it's a rule from heaven. God is a holy God. He can't look at sin. And when there's sin, there's death. And so what you need to know is that the whole Old Testament is filled with this stuff. And really what that is, we call it a type. Have you heard that before? A type of Christ. T-Y-P-E, a type of Christ. A picture, an illustration, a type of Christ. So the lamb of the Old Testament being slaughtered or a goat or a calf and the blood being shed was a very temporary arrangement. Somehow in the mind of God, he acknowledged that these people were sincere about their sinfulness and they were obedient and they killed this animal and their sin was covered in a sense temporarily by the blood of the animal. So on Passover week, on Triumphal Sunday, on the, the Triumphal Entry and Palm Sunday, everybody's gathering their animals and they're getting ready to slaughter them for the covering of their sin. And here we have our Lord Jesus entering town on the very day that everybody is gathering their animals and getting ready for these sacrifices to cover their sin. And it's as though he's saying, look... That is insufficient. The whole book of Hebrews argues that. All of the blood of lambs and goats will not cover your sin. But here I am. I am the ultimate perfect sacrificial lamb on Passover week, on the day that we're presenting our animals and we're getting ready to slaughter. Here I am. I am ready to be slaughtered for your sin. I think that's an interesting picture. And he comes as our substitute. What a remarkable thing. That's why we sing about the cross. That's why the cross is so significant. That when Jesus goes to the cross on Friday night, that in the mind of God, somehow in the mind of God, when Jesus dies on the cross, the sin of the world is heaped up upon Him. And, and all of the sin of the world comes on Christ as though He did all of that sin. The murder and the rapes and the, the human trafficking and the drug abuse and the stealing, and the adulteries. It's as though Jesus did all that Himself. 
And God let him go to the cross and pay the price, which is death, for sin. And his blood flowed. And then in the mind of God, somehow, that sacrifice was the only sacrifice, the sacrifice of the perfect spotless Lamb of God, Jesus himself. In the mind of God, it was a sufficient sacrifice to once and for all cover all of the sin that anybody will do, past, present, or future. And he is the ultimate sacrificial lamb that is illustrated in Passover week. And he said, that's why the cross means so much to us. That's why we go to the cross in all humility and brokenness. My sin was put upon this perfect Savior. Yep. And he did that. And in the mind of God, all my sin was transferred on him, but it didn't stop there. In the mind of God, when I go to the cross and I admit my sinfulness... And I lay down the burden of my sin and I tell God I know I'm a sinner. And I recognize that Jesus was the substitute for me. That he went where I deserve to go. But I couldn't, couldn't pay. I couldn't die long enough or horrible enough to pay my own sin. And God transfers my sin to Jesus and takes Jesus' righteousness and transfers it on me. As though I am the one who kept the law perfectly like Jesus did. So praise God. I mean, it's like we should just get down on our face right now, right? It's like, who deserves that? Nobody. That's why it's grace. That's why it's mercy. It's why you can't buy it. You can't pay for it. It's already done for you. But you go to the cross and all the stupid, ignorant things you did when you were 19 years old and a college sophomore are under the blood. And they're done and gone. What a deal. And you didn't have anything to do with it. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's riding into town and he said, here I am. Perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb to once and for all put an end to this system. The Passover lamb is presented. This was Passover week. Three years before, early on in the ministry of our Lord, when he went public, John the Baptist, didn't John the Baptist look at him and say, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But... As I referenced in parentheses at the top, this is really the not-so-triumphal entry because they missed it. They, they were almost there. And they missed it. We know this because our Lord said so. Letter A, our Lord um, is sad at this event. Look at Luke 19. Luke 19. And if you want to, you can turn there. Otherwise, just listen. Luke 19, this is where in verse... 40, it says the Pharisees were telling him to shut down the crowds. Luke 19, 39 and 40. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You can't be called the Messiah. He answered, I tell you, if, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then it says in verse 41, okay, so he's coming out of Bethphage. He's above Jerusalem. He's looking at Jerusalem. And it says, when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. Okay, this is Luke's account. Luke 19. There's, there's not really a gap in time here. You had the triumphal entry. You can essentially hear the noise of the crowd in your ears. Our Lord is now approaching Jerusalem. And he wept. Saying, Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace. I came to bring peace. And our Lord, tears roll down his cheeks as he looks and he realizes... They missed it. It's like, you almost realized I was here, but you didn't get it. You missed. Wide to the right. 
But now they were hidden from your eyes. You see, there was a judgment that came upon them because they refused to believe the prophets of old and they refused to believe Jesus himself and they were ultimately going to put, be guilty of putting Jesus to death on the cross. The Jews refused to believe that this was the Messiah. They were longing for Messiah, but they refused to accept him as Messiah, even though the fulfillment of Scripture was taking place right in front of their eyes. And he says... Would that you had even, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That's a prophetic judgment. That's why even to this day, Jewish people, we should love them and we should care for them. But Jewish people are very, very difficult to lead to Christ because their eyes have been darkened as a judgment for rejecting Christ. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you And they will surround you and they will hem you in on every side and they will ransack you. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, even pregnant women. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There it is. Why is he crying? Why is he pronouncing judgment? Why is he making this another prophetic? Not one stone will be left on another. That's the temple. The temple was lined, had a lot of gold in it. On the walls, the implements, the Romans burn it in 70 AD. The gold melts down into the cracks of the rocks. The Roman soldiers get their pry bars and they pry it all apart to get to the gold that melted down in the cracks of the rock and they don't leave one stone upon another. Exactly the way Jesus said. And the tears come down his cheeks and he says, because I came to you and I presented myself and you were saying all of the right things and you were shouting all of the right things and you were putting down your coats and your branches and you missed You didn't even know this was the time of your visitation. The king came and you don't even know, really. You're still looking for someone just to overthrow Rome and feed you bread and pay your bills and make your life easy. So our Lord is sad from the event. The disciples, it's sad to observe them. You don't have to turn there for sake of time. John chapter 12, what it says there is that all of this is taking John's account of the triumphal entry in John 12. And it says there that the disciples didn't even understand what was happening until after he rose from the dead and his glorification took place. Then they looked back in their mind's eye and they understood, oh, he was coming to present himself as the Messiah and we didn't even get it. We missed it. We were there. We were at the right place. We were there at the right time. We almost got it, but they missed it. And then the crowd, back in Matthew 21, the crowd... They ask, who is this? They were all stirred up and emotional. And oh man, there was really some buzz going on. Verse 10, and he entered Jerusalem and the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And they almost got it right. This is the prophet Jesus of the the Nazareth. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Almost, that's partly who he was. Listen, they were there at the right time. They were there at the right place. They even said the right words. They could quote scripture. They didn't get it. They almost got it, but they missed it. Almost, if you look it up in the dictionary, means very nearly so, but not quite. Very nearly so, but they missed the obvious. They missed the obvious. How about us today? Are we like the crowd? We're in the right place, aren't we? We're in church on Sunday morning. We've said some of the right words. We've sang some wonderful hymns. The right words in the right place. It's the right time. He's still being patient, calling people unto himself. 
Are we willing to come and surrender to Christ and make Him King of our life? Are we just enjoying the parade like the crowd? Are you just going to enjoy the parade? Or are you going to know that your King has come? He didn't come to make you feel good. He came to give you everlasting life and forgiveness of sin. And the promise of heaven, life everlasting with Him. What a remarkable story. What a remarkable reality. How easy it is to be that close to Jesus. To be so close to Jesus that you watched as, as the donkey he was on rode on your jacket. And you reached out and brushed his leg with your palm branch. And by Friday night, you're screaming out for Barabbas. Because he disappoints you. You just didn't get it. And part of the parade? Or is he your king? Only you know the answer to that question. You playing games with Jesus? You can just come and humble your heart in His presence. He died for your sin. He wants to make you His child. He'll rebuild you from the inside out. Let's stand and pray together, please. Why don't you ask yourself that question as we close yet again. Are you enjoying the parade? Or is Jesus the king of your life? Think right now is the right place, it's the right time, and you know the right words. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Others of you who have claimed for many years to be following Christ have been goofing around, maybe. It's a day for you to renew your commitment to King Jesus. He's the master of the universe. So as you join your voice in worship this Easter season, may it be from a genuine heart of worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords and your Savior from your sin. So Father, do your work among us. Thank you for this account, carefully scribed by Matthew, for our benefit. Thank you for the significance and the symbolism. Help us to learn from the sadness. Help us not to repeat these mistakes. Thank you for your faithfulness and giving us your word. Help us to be true followers of Jesus Christ this Easter season. It's in his name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.